Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, we are bringing a past Rapid Change podcast guest back to the show. Trevor Sylvester, the founder of Cognitive Hypnotherapy and the director of the Quest Institute, has agreed to join us again. His last episode was episode one, where he bravely kicked off this Rapid Change conversation. However, since then, he has released a new book, Grow, Personal Development for Parents, where he applies his 20 years as a leading therapist to the task of raising happy children. So keen to chat about all things change work today, as well as turning our attention to what we can do to help raise those young minds. Uh, welcome back to the show, Trevor. It's good to be back. Thanks for asking me. It's an, it really is. I'm, I'm so pleased that you agreed to come back because uh, I really enjoyed uh, our time with you the first time around. Um, and I also really enjoyed uh, the book Grow. Um, that you've written and um, on a personal note having a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old uh, there are ideas contained within that book that we've already started using on a daily basis uh, and it's making a making a difference so thank you oh, that's great to hear thank you so um, whilst the first time round, you know we explored a lot around the ideas uh, uh, general themes of change and your views around that um, I'd love to know really uh, about what motivated you to to write this book aimed at you know personal development for parents well it was i think it was two things really one was looking around and seeing an awful lot of bad parenting going on which i thought might just be a product of me getting old and grumpy but i decided it wasn't and and also recognizing that all the clients that i that come through the door their problems stem from things that happen in their childhood almost exclusively and so it just occurred to me that if we could train a generation of parents to raise children in a way that avoided those kind of mistakes that led to adult clients, then I could render the whole of therapy completely unnecessary and obsolete. Absolutely. So I thought, why not? Yeah. So I like it. You, you had a, a, a small, mediocre goal, which is to render the entire of therapy from now on obsolete. I like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Make every parent the pre-therapist. Yeah. The original title for the book was lessons from a therapist chair so your child never needs to sit in one. Great. But they they decided against it. My publishers yep. decided against it. 
but it's such a nice concept uh, and such a nice idea. Um, and of course, the, the parental uh, world is full of often quite a lot of conflicting and confusing advice. And I think it was interesting that fairly early on in your book, you talk about the fact that you, you don't uh, certainly protest to be uh, an expert on, on, on parenting. Hell no. No. I, I don't think there's such a thing as an expert on parenting because you know, all children are different and every child needs a different way of being parented. So to have just a one size fits all, this is what you do with a child in this situation, I think is wrong. It's why within Grow, there's a there's a, a good section on looking at the individual that you're you're growing here, and what's going to suit them. Because very often, you know, parents will parent how they would like to have been parented, and that isn't necessarily the way the child needs the parent to be. You know, I really wish I'd had me as my dad, because I'd have loved me as my dad. Yeah. And then you suddenly realize, well, I'm being a great me dad to my children, but is that necessarily who they wanted? So it's it's adaptability, really. You've got to make it up as you go along, but with some with a framework to kind of guide you. And it's interesting because from the perspective of therapeutic work, uh, there's a similar, I think, issue that happens within you know change work sessions, which is you might handle someone's issues in the way that you would want your own issues to be handled rather than tailoring what you're doing Absolutely. for that client. And the parental role, it strikes me, is, is similar to being a flexible therapist. Absolutely. So easy with your children to think that they're just mini yous. And so your mirror neurons kick into action when you see them doing something and you foresee what it would mean to you if you were to do that. And of course, you helicopter in and try to guide them to a better way. You know, it's a, an eternal frustration to me that I'm a very wise man and my kids completely ignore my advice. And it's the right thing for them to do because they're on their journey. They're not on my version of their journey. So there's this constant frustration and it never goes away, people. Absolutely. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful chapter in the book uh, with the heading, they're not difficult, they're just not you. Yeah, yes. It sums it up. You know, my, my, my kids are great. They're 33 and 31 coming up 34 32 and you know they still um they still bewilder me sometimes but it's only because i've got the wrong head on you know i, I keep expecting them to be respond to situations like i would so but, so even before you wrote the book you must have been influenced by the work you do therapeutically in terms of your own parenting and what you were doing even before you sat down formally to go okay well what are these things that I'm doing and, and how am I manifesting these therapeutic ideas into what I do? I think so, even without necessarily consciously thinking about it, you look back and realize that my style of parenting absolutely transformed from the years when I started as a therapist to the time before. You suddenly realize you know, an awful lot of your dumbass thinking that, that you just taken for granted. And, and with my early introduction to NLP, I think the, the way the thinking models that it gave me just help me to step outside of that and see different perspectives more readily. Mm. So I definitely changed in that effect. And, and I think as a therapist, you begin to realize that when all, of the, when all of the techniques and all of the stuff and all of the symptom work has been done, what people are left with is, is what do I do now with my life? They have a freedom to begin to explore what they actually want to do with their life now. They don't have to do what they thought society expected or their parents expected. And an awful lot of what makes their life become what they want it to be is mindset 
And so I think what I really gained as a parent was the, all the reading and research I did into how do you create the right mindset for success. And I don't mean monetary success. I mean success as someone having the most fun you can have being yourself. And, and I hope that's what I give them the kids, that, you know, the failure is just a, an opportunity to learn something. It is not a thing that you slap yourself with. You know, there is no, there's no losing, there's only learning. Those kind of success mindsets, I think, are fundamental. And that's really what the book is all about, teaching your children to have this independent locus, of, this internal locus of control mm. so that they can listen to everybody but go their own way. So this this internal locus of control, which I know you refer to as ILOC, uh, yeah. and obviously an external locus of control you refer to as ELOC. Yeah. And on the last podcast, we talked very much about how you would help clients who you're seeing therapeutically to become ILOC or work with things that are ILOC, you know, things that they can control that are in their ability to, to, to work with. And it seems very much that that's the focus of, you know, where this is going in terms of personal development for parents is how we teach our children to have that ILOC mindset. Absolutely, it is. Because I do think it's the it's the single biggest gift that you can endow a child with to be able to go into any situation and say, what is in my control at this moment in time and what can I do about that? And rather than who's here to help me, um, what do I need to do to make myself acceptable to other people? There's a, there's a core resilience that emerges from being ILOC. So th there's a really interesting uh, area that I'd, I'd like to talk to you about, which is, I mean, I often get contacted by parent, concerned parents who have children that are, you know, ha having, they're having, they are having difficulties with, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, and they want me to help their child sort out the problem. Mm. And often I find myself having conversations on the phone where actually I, they sound like they're being just normal kids. Yeah. And, or maybe they're being a little fussy over food or maybe they're anxious and worried about certain things, which can be part and parcel of just growing up. And I, I wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit about like, where's the line if you're a parent between you know, taking them to someone because they have an issue and actually accepting that, you know, it's okay for kids to have certain issues sometimes. Yeah, the kids have to have issues. Otherwise, how do they grow character? You know, most of us at some point in our lives were scared of the dark and most of us now are not. And and if my mum and dad, when I was terrified of the dark, had sent me to a therapist to, to sort it out, what lesson are they giving me that, that someone will solve that problem? Instead, going through the fear and finding my own way clear of it, in some way maybe was fundamental to me growing my character. I'll never know. But it might have just given me a little bit of, of backbone to face other difficulties I have later. So, yeah, I think really therapists have a responsibility to sometimes say to the parents, uh, actually, this is more your issue than it is the child's. Just leave them be. One of my chapters, one of the mantras is about it takes bravery to be a parent. Sometimes you've got to let your children go through stuff You've got to see them fall. You've got to not immediately pick them up and brush them down. You've got to see if they get up on their own and then sit down with them and say, what did you learn by getting up? Because if all they learn is that, that mum and dad are going to be there all the time, then suddenly you know, you're getting old and they're 40 years old and they're still expecting you to pick them up. So I think we were a bastion against that. So often I've, I've had clients bring their, their child to me 
And within about 15 minutes, the child is sitting outside while I'm working on the parent because it's their fear that they're a bad parent, that they're not good enough. That's what's driving this need. Mm. It's really interesting, really, really interesting. And I I just wonder uh, in terms of that that line that that we draw, how we would go about helping a parent realize that it's 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 for them to do rather than the child mm. the child to change well it's easy for me i give them a copy of my book and say <laughs> read chapter three <laughs> but it is you know i think i think some some aspects of therapy are purely educational there's a lot of people out there who do not know the things we know that we take for granted probably the majority of people don't and so often to sometimes just explain things like the principle of ilock and elock and and the idea of a learning mindset rather than a performance mindset. Just things like that can really just open people's eyes and they go, oh, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. And then they have a procedure, they have, a, they have a, a framework for what they're guiding their child through in their childhood, instead of just going into spasm every single time there's a life crisis. You know, this is just the deal. This is today's issue with the child. What do we do here? And if you've got a framework of what is it the child's going to learn from going through this? You know, what am I going to teach them that's beneficial? Are they teaching me or am I teaching them? Yeah. You just have some fundamental mantras to run through your head and you realize an awful lot of it is keeping your hands off, just letting the children grow. It's, it's interesting, especially that uh, when you talk about, you know, it takes bravery. Uh, I'm reminded of, I think, a story you told was it your, your son getting a motorbike. Yeah. And yeah. that, that must have taken bravery when you watch him, perhaps not uh, motoring around quite as safely visually as you would like him to be. No, it's, it's the trouble knowing this stuff. You know, I was very aware of, of my absolute desire to not to get him off the motorbike. But the utter hypocrisy of it, of knowing that I used to ride motorbikes and that my parents have been brave enough to let me. And so, yeah, you've got to... You sometimes you just got to hold your breath and hope and touch wood it works you know but some degree of, of neglect is beneficial i use neglect with bunny ears you know but absolutely I think nowadays with with the kind of atmosphere I, I think is at the school gates i think with some aspects of mum's net there seems such this competitive aspect of parenting that puts people in fear of not being as good a parent as everybody else that there's just this invisible standard that's impossible to reach, but people keep feeling they need to aspire to. And of course, their children are the symbol of the success of their parenting, which then puts the child under pressure of either being perfect enough. And so, we, you know, the wheels on the bus go round and round and round. And later on, there's the clash. Well, interestingly, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but there seems to be an increase in the competitive nature of parents yeah. and a reduction in the teaching kids to be competitive within the education system so now we all get certificates for taking play uh, taking part rather than you know oh someone actually won yeah and i don't like that at all you know there is that does not prepare them for life and i think that's it we we don't not suggesting life the... is competitive are you trevor well of course it is if you're joining life you know, if you we can see that narcissism is growing at an at an immense rate in the younger generations as a product of many things, including parenting style, where we put the child at the absolute center of the family and they must not they must always have their needs served, which mm. I think is, is a terrible lesson. 
And then, again, in my generation, when they stopped having a failure in O levels and A levels, and suddenly you just had loads of different grades. And so nothing was actually classified as you failed. You just got a really low rubbish grade that no one's ever going to want. But there was an illusion you couldn't fail. And then, of course, you go into business and you're saying, look at me. Aren't you lucky to get me? And people don't care how great you are until you prove by your deeds that you are. And that's not really the lesson that we're teaching our children, I don't think, clearly enough, that, you know, this self-esteem thing, don't just keep praising kids to raise their self-esteem. You have to praise them for what they do, for the actions they take, not for their achievement, and certainly not for how clever they are, but just for the actions they took to move them towards the goal they were trying to get to. If they didn't get to it, that doesn't matter, but did you do your best? And what can you learn to do better next time? That kind of thing going on. So that's why there absolutely should be winners and losers in sport, because everyone has different skills. Well, I'm convinced that even if they all get a certificate for taking part in a race, it doesn't fool the kids. The kids know. The kids know that one guy still won. Of you course know, they he do. came first, which means he feels resentful because he wasn't given the accolades he deserved. And the, oh. kid, and the kid that lost doesn't really feel any better because he got a certificate of attendance because he still feels like he lost. He still says, sorry, buddy, head. What's, what's to learn from that is what could you do to improve yourself the next time? Hmm. And there's a great book called Spark that came out a few years ago now. And it's, it's based around what in America they're calling the new PE. And the principle of it is that you... In PE lessons, you're no longer competing against other people. You're competing against your own previous performance. So they give, give kids heart, heart monitors straps, for example, and then they go out and run. And it didn't matter who finishes first or 50th, but the person who gets a certificate is the person who did better than the last time. So all of a sudden, the playing field is simply within their own potential. And, and it shows how physical exercise before an exam can increase your exam results by 25%. It's a tremendous, easy, easy read book. I, I just read it and I had an MP as, um, as my client. And I kind of, at the end of the session, abandoned the purpose of the therapy just to press the book on him and said, you've got to get this into government for God's sake. You know, this, yeah. will, this will transform our children. And who, who's the author? Remind me. Uh, do you know, I don't know. It's on my bookshelf somewhere. It's called Spark. I can send you the... I'll send you the details afterwards. Because I'd, like, I'd, like, I'd love to put a link uh, under, under yeah. this episode so people can go and check it out. And it's something that I, I, I will buy as well and, and read. Um, it's really good. Absolutely fantastic. Um, okay. Um, so one thing that I, I, as a parent myself, I have often wondered about something and wanted to, to bring it up that often we hear people say you know we, we get down on our level and we talk to our very young children and we say things like you know you know what you've just done has made me very very sad and we almost intellectually try and reason with them and understand um, and I have I personally had some concerns around that uh, namely that if we say something along the lines of you know your actions just now have made me very sad we're kind of, are we not, putting this idea into their heads that they're responsible for the parents' feelings. And by default, that there's a message un underlying that, which is that we are not responsible for our own feelings, that other people affect us, rather than us being, you know, the only person that can change my feelings is myself. And I'm responsible for my own state. 
So I'm wondering how far you would sort of uh, agree with that as a, as a valid concern and maybe ways ways that we deal with those sorts of situations that don't risk those sort of unhelpful cause and effects. It's a big, big question. We could probably talk about that exclusively for the rest of this interview because there's a lot of different facets. One of the things is I think a lot of parents mistake um, explaining a child's actions to them as a meaningful form of character modification or behavior modification. Now, you see, you see parents in supermarkets usually saying it quite loudly so people around them know what good parents they are, explaining why little Harry couldn't have the Haribo and blah, 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 blah. And, and all the child is doing is thinking blah, 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 wait until this is over and then that's my punishment done. And so you shouldn't mistake explanation for, for actual punishment. The best punishment is, in my opinion, for a child, is the withdrawal of attention. Children hate that. If you look at look to animals, um, horses, if a foal is misbehaving, the mother sends it out of the herd because the isolation is the punishment. Same with dogs. We can learn from the animal kingdom. So I think, I think it's excellent to sit and explain to a child how behavior makes people makes them feel. But I, I take on your point. I, I like the um, nonviolent behavior model, nonviolent communication model of Marsha Rosenberg, where in four steps, you say, when you do that action, it makes me feel X because I have a need for, and then you mention what that need is. And what I would like you to do in the future is Z. And that's, is a, that's a thing that's designed for adult mediation. And I find it works tremendously well. But I think in a simplified form, it would also work well with children, not just, you know, when you did that, you made me feel sad. To give them a reason why there's a sadness can emotionally educate them. And what I would like you to do in the future is this instead. You've got then given them something to calibrate against. If they do it again, you can say, do you remember the last time I asked you to, to do this instead? And if you're teaching them kindness, which we talked about before this interview, mm. you know, kindness is a predominant filter of how to be in the world, then that becomes part of the language as well. And talking about kindness and the filters that you want to, to help them look through the world uh, through, um, I'd like to share one of the things that, uh, since reading Trevor's book, uh, that we've we've started doing, and certainly in my household, is that we have certain questions that we go around, and almost on a daily basis, we ask everyone in our family. Um, things like, who were you kind to today? And mm -hmm. uh, who was kind to you? Who did you help today? Um, I have to tell you, I also throw in another one, which is, you know, something, one new thing that you learnt today. And often uh, right. we also, both my wife and I, also try and come up with something interesting that we learnt that day that we didn't know before, because I like the idea of establishing a need and a love of learning and acquiring Absolutely. information. That's brilliant. Um, and for them to see that this is not something that you're doing to them, you're doing with each other, is, is even better. And, and I'm hoping, and I'll, I will be honest to the listeners right now, the, uh, I wouldn't say that I, I immediately have suddenly, since reading the book, developed the, the kindest four-year-old on the planet. And sometimes he does say, you know, when I say, who, who are you kind to today? He'll go, no one, you know, <laughs> and giggle or just ignore Absolutely. the question. But I, yeah. I, I do and really see the merit in if it becomes a thing that we do, surely he's going to begin to filter the world because he knows the questions are a daily thing for oh opportunities to be kind or opportunities to spot kindness. It's it's just simple priming. You know what is on your mind is brought to mind. So if, if kindness becomes part of the 
things your brain is tuned to go looking for, then you see more opportunities to to act in that way around you. You become more sensitized to the small acts of kindness done to you. And, you know, it's the kind of whole idea of the smile that goes around the world. The more we spread kindness, the more it's going to be a feature. And let's face it, the world could do with it. I think if we could raise our children just to be kind, you've been a successful parent. And perhaps I, I think there is a metric often of, you know, we're a good parent if my child isn't crying. Yeah. Rather than stepping back and actually saying, OK, well, what are the what are the values? What are the ideas? What are the filters I want my child to have? And what are the ways in which we can embrace or, or put in their head these ideas, these values, these ideas and get them filtering uh, the world through yeah. that? Um I think has such such value and is a different way of looking at the the job of parenting. Mm. Um, yes, because you're know, crying. They've got a, this immature limbic system. Of course, they're crying. They haven't got the they haven't got the cognition yet to be able to balance their emotions. But the question is, what are they crying about? And one of the the most important mantras in my book is either you're training them or they're training you. And so every time they cry part of their mind is measuring your response to their tears. And the more you reward their tears with something they feel benefits them, the more they're going to cry, the more often they're going to cry. So I think it's fundamental that in your transactions with your children, you are looking at what is the learning here for them? How is this going to benefit them later on? As adults, what are they going to learn, have learned from my actions right now? Because this is the thing that goes wrong, I think, most often with parents. And you, and you see it in children a lot, where they're placed at the centre of the family, and the children have absolutely trained the parents to jump through hoops because of the child's behaviour, or to try to get the, get an avoidance of a particular behaviour that, that you don't want the child to do, and it, it's terrible. The, the other, an example of it, the other day on the radio, uh, it was Radio Two, and Brian O'Driscoll was being interviewed by Chris Evans, and he was in his car, and the, the, he was on the school run, and his children. Some mention was made of how the children had been bribed with chocolate to be quiet during the interview. And I thought, what a terrible piece of parenting. You know, what are the children learning from that? Because there are moments as the parent, it's your job to say, you're going to be quiet now. And there is no dispute about that. This is the moment when this is about me and you're going to just shut up. Not if you're quiet, you'll get rewarded with chocolate because that's suddenly they've got leverage in the future. You can just bet your bottom dollar the next time they see the parents needing some time for their own stuff, they're going to start whinging and crying because they know they're likely to get chocolate from it. It's so easy and you see it all the time. I've seen it on my Facebook feed this morning now about Kinder Eggs in a, in a queue. You know, that is not the time to buy them chocolate because they'll moan if they don't get it. It's the bad lesson. This is the thing that I rant about the most. Mm. I'm training them or they are training you. Well, interesting that you, you give that as an example, because I know on the last podcast, we talked about the work you were doing with slim pods. And obviously you have an interest and have worked in the past with people with weight related issues. Yeah. How much would you say often people's weight related issues are affected by those interactions that they've had as, you know, with their parents where they've associated uh, reward and eating together oh, hugely it's one of the most common things i would say my my approach to weight loss is that for the people who've had it as a recurrent issue in their lives 
you'll nearly always find an emotional connection to the food. And, and usually that it actually divides down to particular types of food, sweet or savory. And it nearly always goes back to, to a sensitization in the child that food equals love or acceptance. You know, oh, oh, darling, do this for me and I'll give you some chocolate. If you don't do this for me, you won't get chocolate. And so once you understand in the child's mind that chocolate equals love from my mum or reward from my mum, then you have a bad day at the office and your boss has shouted at you. What are you going to reach for to feel loved again? And you see this happen again and again and again. We should not reward children with things. Otherwise, the way the little brain makes a cause and effect relationship, the two become just part of their, their the architecture of their mind. It's crazy. So not to be too provocative or play devil's advocate, but if I were listening to this and I no, I'm going to go home from work to screaming Jimmy, who's going, but I want some chocolate right now. And I've had a hard day and I'm tired mm. and I'm ratty. And it's, you know, and on the one hand, I know if I give him the chocolate, little Jimmy's going to chomp it down and be quiet. Mm. What advice would you have for, for the parent who, you know, is looking for that short term fix, even though cognitively and rationally, they know it may not be the long term best strategy? Sorry. Well, <laughs> no, well, I'm gonna. You know, I'm on, I'm on my soapbox, so I'm gonna say, suck it up. You're the parent. Hmm. The short-term fix is not going to be a longer-term solution, and you're building your child in those moments when they're emotionally hijacked like that. They are particularly sensitized to the end result of that action, and so it'll make them go quiet next this time, but it's going to not prevent them from doing it again and again and again. So I think, you know, you've just got to, it goes in the tough luck drawer for them. They are not going to have the chocolate. And the minute their back's turned, you eat it. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like you know, it. It's not always about, again, you can't always be their friend. That is not, you know, when I hear parents saying, you know, oh, my 10 year old's my best friend. Well, that's odd. You know, because sometimes you've got to be the parent and say, do something that's going to be intensely unpopular with them. Am I, and the thing that's really helped me with this is that you realize now that I'm a, grand, a grandparent, grandchildren are your revenge. Your children will not appreciate how great you were as a parent until they, till they start doing it for themselves. And then you sit back and you watch them going through the stuff you went through with a little smile on your face. And they get it. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, you can start going, yep, do you remember? And you can just start giving them back everything they've been giving you for the last 20, 20 to 30 years. It's a lovely moment. Have you got another book in the pipeline called Personal Development for Grandparents? Hey. Called, called I Told You So, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> that is not a bad idea, is it? <laughs> there we go. As long as I get a credit in the middle uh, somewhere, that, that would be fine. Can I also... Can I also just put in the thing that, you know, this is, that's a thing said from the height of my, of my soapbox. And I know there are just times when you're knackered and you're going to give them chocolate. And don't think that because you've done it, you've now failed as a parent and you've ruined them forever. You, it's never a one shot deal. It's trying to be as consistent as you possibly can over the course of their childhood. And we're all, we are all going to fail. So I think that that really brings me on to talk about something else that that 
that has come up and certainly in my head as I was reading it because I know as well working therapeutically with people I've done work with uh, a woman comes to mind for example who was very very anxious all the time about doing things wrong you know she did something wrong it was you know so which meant that she was kind of withdrawing and not willing to try anything and ultimately this came down when we did some work we unraveled a little bit of this and when she was young her parents had a big jar of lollipops and she had a bunch of kids and friends that come over and uh, she'd taken one of the lollipops out because she thought she was allowed but the mother had given her such a, a shouting at because she actually wasn't allowed and she felt humiliated so now she spent her life trying to avoid that feeling of I, I put a foot wrong and, yeah. and, and I've, I've been snapped at and I'm, I'm sure you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories where these innocuous little moments with a parent which to the parent means nothing will mm. somehow affect a, a, a child and then they grow up with certain issues that seem to have shaped uh, much of you know the way they are led me to think that you know isn't there a danger that we we could as parents be reading a book like this thinking oh my word i just i have to tread very carefully on eggshells as i bring up you know little jimmy because i just might put a foot wrong and therefore he's going to be screwed up forever and then uncle trevor will have to fix him yeah and the book is the complete antithesis of that because you are going to screw your kids up you you cannot know the effect of the most well-intentioned intervention on your part, you cannot know that that's going to have a positive or a negative outcome, ultimately. Mm. There's a story that I put in the book, um, the Native American story about um, about the chief who uh, goes off and gets some horses. And they said, oh, you've been really fortunate. You've got all these horses. And he says, maybe. And then his son rides one of the horses and breaks his leg and says, oh, that was really bad luck for him. And the chief says, maybe. And then because the son's broken his leg, he can't go off on a raiding party and all they all get killed. They say, oh, I was lucky he didn't go. And he just says, maybe. You never know how things are going to turn out. Mm. So some of the things that you might, that might be screw-ups on your part as a parent might be the very things that galvanized the child further down the line as a seminal moment that taught them something useful. There might be a really great thing that you thought you did as a good parent that somehow the child mangled into a bad interpretation. So... In a way, what the book is about is if you create the right mindset in the child, then they can do this work for themselves. They can sort their own mind out and filter it through through the growth mindset, the learning mindset of saying, what is there to learn here? What doesn't this need to be about? What's How do I gain control of how I feel in this moment? Those kinds of skills become a default. So you just become another bit of the external world chucking them stuff that they have to filter and turn into the best thing that they can do for themselves. So what advice would you have for parents who are struggling perhaps with that idea of like accepting we're going to fail as parents? Mm. Buy my book. Yep. And realize you're not going to fail as parents by making individual mistakes of parenting. You'll fail as parents if you don't care. You'll fail as parents if you don't love. And no one listening to this is going to be in that category. And no one reading my book is going to be in that category. Mm. Now, if you, this is about how you shape the love you have for your children, because sometimes it's your, it's the very love for them that creates the problems. Love creates so much fear about what's going to happen to my child if this happens to them. 
that we're, we're desperately trying to radio control their life because we can see that, you know, say when my kids were doing their, their A's and O levels, and I could see they were not working as hard as I would like for them to have worked. And so my brain goes off and runs, runs a consequence of them living in cardboard boxes under Waterloo Bridge because they didn't get their exams. You know, and that's complete bull because I've never once been asked for my exam results for any job I've ever been through. So it's nonsense. And yet I was still living in that program. And so we have to kind of take a breath and realize that loving them sometimes, mainly actually, is letting go of them, having a lighter and lighter touch mm. and just trusting that you're setting up a self-guiding mechanism within them, this iLock mindset. That will mean they'll go off and make their own choices. And sometimes those choices will puzzle you. But it's because they're not on your trajectory. They're on their own. And their life doesn't have to make sense to you. It only has to make sense to them. You know, I left the police 18 years into a career to become a hypnotherapist. It made no sense to my parents at all. And I think they did a really good job of leaving their hands off. They didn't get it, but they didn't try to stop me either. Mm. And and you talk about this idea that none of us are who we are going to be yet. Yeah. So to tie into that. It is, isn't it? A wonderful thing. And and it seems like the antidote of that idea of, of being very anxious about the parenting that we do, you know, because they're not there yet. And that's okay. Yeah. I, I think this is a thing that, that keeps, well, it keeps me fresh in life, but in this field as well, that Everybody has the potential to change every single moment of their life. It's just a question of whether we feel the need and whether we, we have the motivation to act to create that change. And it's wonderful to think you know, that I'm not going to be who I am. That I'm, that I, there's more to me still to come. Because otherwise, how boring would that be to think that I'm finished? Mm. I love the incompleteness of it. And I think it also it helps you just calm yourself down about kids because kids go through phases. And, you know, my boys, both of them really, until 25, 26, they were lovely kids, but they didn't seem to have a clue about where they were going and what they were doing. And suddenly, well, the thing for both of them, it seemed to me, was they got into serious relationships and that focused their mind on, okay, what are we building here? And they just took off like rockets and have done tremendously well ever since. And at 25, I was thinking, oh, my God, when... Now, this is a fail-to-launch scenario. But it wasn't, that was in my head. It wasn't in theirs. They were having a good time, and they were doing what they wanted to do. And it was all good preparation. It's why when, you, when we did that two-minute two thing, and you said, what would I change? What would I tell my 20-year-old to do? What I said was yoga. Yeah. Because that would improve my physical well-being right now. But I wouldn't want to go back and advise them to change anything about what, about what was coming up. Because maybe I needed to go through all of those things to be me now. Yep. And if I said, well, don't do that, or don't, don't have that relationship, or whatever it might be, or, or find hypnotherapy sooner, well, maybe I needed to learn everything in the order that I learned it in order to be who I am now. And with me being happy with who I am now, then all of that's got to be good, isn't it? Absolutely. Who I'm going to be yet. And that's exciting to me. It's it's a lovely thing, and it's such a nice mindset to have, as, as I would say, or you would say, a, a growth mindset. Yeah, a growth mindset. You know, um, which is which is fantastic. We the, were both recently in the company of Ruben Bettino. Yeah. Who, as you know, is 86 years old, and he did this most marvelous day of training for us. And 
and he's only just submitted another research paper. He's a professor of chemistry. He's still researching it. Uh, he's still looking to write another book. Yeah, he's not who he's going to be yet. I think that's that's a thing to really aspire to. Well, it, it is, and this idea that change change is just always happening, happening and inevitable. You know? Absolutely, we've got to control our change because you see an awful lot of people as they get older, what they're changing into is more of who they've always been, mm -hmm. whether or not that's who they're happy being. So when you realise that change is just our default state, you cannot stay the same, then you tend to be either moving forward or you're sliding back. There is no standing still. So to keep this idea of what more is there for me to explore about myself, I think just gives you a reason to get up. That that's why I think increasingly so, as I as I do, and I work within this profession for for longer. I I'm more and more amused by that that idea or that question when someone says, "Yeah, but is change really possible?" Because <laughs> for yeah. me, they should be saying, "Is staying the same really possible?" Yeah, and you it's know, not. It's not. I mean, it it's just it's. We know change happens, and change is going to happen whether you like it or not. Absolutely. Like we it's cannot just, it's, Yeah. We're creatures who move, and move involves change at every moment. So, you know, we've got to keep moving. I, I, see, I see stasis as, a, as the absolute thing to avoid in life. But I also wonder whether there are some people who might be, I, I don't say in inverted commas, modern parents who might say, well, some of these ideas, don't they just sound a little bit like that old school parenting, you know, that uh, you talked about a tough luck draw, mm. you know, just saying, well, you know, because that's how, you know, our generation, the generation before us or so would say, yeah, tough luck, you're not having that. Yep. Now we so have to get down and we, we, we negotiate with our children. We, 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 we encourage communication and open two ways. And, yeah. you know, wondering what, what you would say around that sort of... Uh, if someone had an accusation like that thrown at you? I would agree with them that there is absolutely a need for the children to recognise their place in the family, but that their place isn't in the primary position, mm. which sometimes children can force their way into if there is too laissez-faire an attitude of parenting. I think it's great for kids to realise that sometimes it's just not their turn. That sometimes today you are going to be bored visiting nanny and granddad. That's just the way that it is. Because that's what life is going to be as they get older. And if they're constantly think, finding that it's their needs that are being fed first in the family, then imagine the adult that's going to emerge from that childhood. They're always going to think that their needs have to be met before anybody else's. And who wants to be in a relationship with that person? Who wants to be a work colleague of that person? It's, it's going to create narcissists. So definitely explain to them why they're not, this is not their moment. Mm. They're just going to have to put it in a tough luck draw. And doesn't matter what they do, it's unchangeable. There's times for them to come first and they should see you turning your life upside down to make something work for them, just as they should see sometimes their life gets put on hold for a need that you have. Mm. And I think it's that interplay that actually creates a better family atmosphere. Well, on a, on a personal story note, since reading the book, one thing that we and I started doing is whenever we get in the car, I always used to put on music, <clears throat> kiddie music for them to listen to, uh -huh. you know, and um, it was driving me mad, uh, <laughs> especially when more often than not, I'm getting so used to it that I drive off somewhere and the music's playing. I'd get 10 minutes down the road singing along to, you know, Polly put the kettle on 
uh, at the top of my voice and then realised that the children aren't even in the car with me because uh, the CD's auto-playing. Um, but actually, I think there's real merit, and I started doing this, saying, well, okay, George, after this song, Mummy gets to choose something that she wants to listen to for a bit. Absolutely. You know, or, heaven forbid, sometimes I even get a go. It's, you know, I, think I don't want that, Daddy. Well, okay, but it, it's my turn now. And, you know, I think it's really important that you should do that. They should, everybody should take their turn. But also laying down... Um, I think music is such an important part of childhood. Maybe this is just because I'm quite auditory. Mm. But, you know, I grew up really disliking my parents' choice of music. And yet now, if I hear Jim Reeves come on the radio, I get a, a lovely little jolt of nostalgia. Yeah. So music is part is a soundtrack of our life, isn't it? So while they might not like your choice of music at the moment, you might find later they, they return to it with a, a different appreciation because you've kind of laid it down early on. And I love... My kids, one of the things that my boys and I share is is a love of a great span of music, mm. a lot of which they gained from me. Uh, I'm tremendously proud of that. Well, listen, even to this day, I can sing uh, a lot of a lot of tracks from a Yorkshire folk band called The Spinners, who my mum uh -huh. was my mum was a big fan of. You know, um, so uh, if someone said, you know, who do you like? I, I think I probably wouldn't advertise the fact that I'm a big Spinners fan, but. Uh, there you go. It yeah. me with this lovely nostalgic sense. Yes, I haven't quite managed to embrace Gilbert O'Sullivan. That was my mum's favourite, but mm -hmm. uh, but Jim Reeves, I can sing distant drums. <laughs> yeah, just about. Yeah. <laughs> if we move for a second back to some ideas that you mentioned on the rapid fire round, that might be more towards the therapeutic change work that, that you do. Uh -huh. You talked about this idea of uh, misconceptions, things that you used to believe were true but are no longer. That the deeper the trance doesn't really make a difference to the outcome and this idea of dehypnotizing people seems yeah. uh, quite different from the typical uh mindset of the therapist here or the, the client that would come in expecting to be hypnotized absolutely well this ties in with what we've been talking about really because um you know if i if i quickly kind of mm. do this do the spiel about it of how yeah. it's estimated that we're in in some kind of altered state 90 percent of our waking day so we, we can label that as trance. We are not fully present more than 10% of the day. Just there's a mental trick going on that makes it seem as if we are. But mainly we're on automatic pilot. And our brain is either in the past or somewhere in the future. And if we call that a trance state, then when clients come to see you and they talk about the problem they have, they're talking about a problem they have in particular moments of their day. And trance is contained within that problem. Somebody sees a spider and they have a spider phobia, they are jerked into a spider trance that hijacks their behavior and causes them to act in a particular way, which isn't in character with the way they behave when there isn't a spider around. So our job is to, is to change their brain in the connections it's making that is forcing this trance to operate in order to benefit the person. Now you see this with parents as well, that you'll see a collective trance emerge between a parent and a child when there's some kind of emotional upset going on where afterwards they go why do i always do that when my child does that why do i overreact in that way why do i shout in that way why do i do this and it's a trance and if parents can wake either wake up them wake themselves up or get some help to wake themselves out of it you know for example if they have a feeling that they're not good enough then 
then really parenthood is a fantastic amplifier of that because your child will demonstrate you're not good enough and not a lot of your waking day. So if you work on that and let go of this feeling you're not good enough, then you're less likely to get triggered into a trance where you shout at your child for manifesting your own sense of failure. Does that, that make sense? It, it does, and it's really interesting because it's brought back this idea of I remember when I, when I went to university, you know, and I'd been away from home for six, seven months or whatever, and I really felt, you know, hey, I've grown as a person. I'm independent. I'm not the young lad that left, that lived at home with all those pre-existing patterns. When I go home, they will see the more mature Howard. They will see how far I've come. And, of course, the moment I walk in through the family home, you know, as I visit back, yeah. you know, and mum or dad says what they say in that tone that they use, mm. I it's like a trance trigger is triggered. And I go Absolutely. back into little boy Howard who lives at home trance and respond in the same ridiculous ways. And mm. then I think to myself, well, why? I've, I've, I've come I, so I, far. How can I how can I have just been no. reduced immediately to that? I think if you're in a relationship, your partner can be a real help to you in that because there'll be times when... <laughs> You know, when you get triggered into a trance behavior with your child and your partner can be standing back going, what was that about? I remember when I, my wife first um, met my parents and we went, we traveled down and, and we met them. And after, and I thought I had a normal kind of visit with my mum and dad. And afterwards, when we got in the car, she said, who the hell were you? Because she'd observed me getting, getting emotionally hijacked into this this trance Trevor that they put me in because let's face it as parents, we are master hypnotists mm. and we are putting in anchors all the way through childhood, you know, with voice tones and things. Oh, Oh, did you only get, get a C for that exam? There's a certain tonality and we can trigger that again when they're 40 and go, Oh, you didn't get me a father's day card, did you? And you trigger guilt and disappointment. And, and suddenly they're, they're 10 years old in front of you all over again. And, there's a it's a great benefit to have a pet somebody who is with you who's read the book too who kind of goes you see what you just did there and you can even begin to coach each other in staying out of that trance mm. it's a good discipline to be thinking if ever you find yourself beginning to get emotionally involved in something that's the precursor for a trance state and just asking is this a trance i want to be in right now or is there a better way that's a really interesting thing you've just said there as well in terms of if there are any specific hypnotists listening, which is, uh, you know, uh, an, in, an emotional state can be a precursor for a trance. It's almost, I'd almost say is, really. Mm. Emotions are trance states. They're not a cognitive, they're not a cognitive act. They're a limbic system act. Yep. And the root of the word emotion is to move. Emotions are there to get you to do something. And emotions occur before the conscious thought of having the emotion. So clearly your unconscious has an agenda in that emotion occurring. Mm. So I'm almost certainly over, over egging that as a statement. But I think to say they are, a, they are very often a precursor to a trance state is a useful rule of thumb. Yeah, which is interesting, especially if you were thinking about, you know, how to induce, uh, you know, in inverted commas, that formal trance state, if there are people right. out there interested in that, um, you know, that engaging emotions, you know, is a very valid way of beginning Absolutely. to move someone into it rather than being emotionless and saying, you know, you're getting sleepy, you're getting oh, sleepy, 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 your eyes are closing. See, for me, life is so easy, getting people in trance is so easy, you've only got to say, so what's upsetting you? And boom, they're in it. Mm. The minute upset is a trance. You know, fear is a trance. Jealousy is a trance. 
So I want them to go into that trance to figure out what's that about. Getting them into that feeling opens up that reality tunnel that means we can go and explore what's contained within it that has caused it to exist in the first place. And then you can collapse the tunnel. There's no more upset to find. That's, you know, that's really the model of, of cognitive hypnotherapy. Which means, you know, as, as parents, we are all hypnotizing our children. Yeah, we definitely are. But what do you want them? Because not all trance, don't, don't get the idea that all trance states are bad. You know, they, they are just facts of life. And a lot of, we have huge amounts of fun mm. in any positive trance states. And what I'm wanting, for example, if somebody, you know, in, when you're coaching athletes, what we're after is what they usually call a zone state, where they actually let go of their thinking mind and just let their unconscious take over their physical behaviors. And that's when they obtain a peak state. Well, I want to encourage my clients to be able to go into that kind of state whenever they want to optimally perform. As Fitz Pearls would say, I want them to get out of their own way and just do the thing. And that could be giving a presentation. It could be playing, playing basketball. It could be making love. It really doesn't matter. Just in this moment, am I? Is it necessary for me to be directing every moment of this, or can it actually just be left to flow? In positive psychology, they talk about flow states, and again, I think that's one of the key things to be able to trigger yourself into a positive flow trance state any time you want to maximize your performance. As a human being, not not just in a performance related, you know, sports or whatever. I don't, for example, if I return to making love, I'm not talking about optimally performing in terms of, you know, I'm going to be uber great in bed. I mean, optimally being intimate mm. and often barrier to intimacy is thinking too much in the moment of um, is my partner enjoying this? Are they enjoying me? Am I doing it right? All that kind of bull just needs to be left aside and just let the intimacy emerge you're not suggesting that you're about to write another book uh, to help men perform better in the bedroom under the same title as your last book grow <laughs> <laughs> grow more that's that's two good book ideas i've given you on this podcast trevor well do you know i don't know what i do without you what, what can we book? say yeah. Listen, when I when I asked you to come back, Trevor, and you, you so kindly agreed, was there anything that you thought would come up uh, today that we haven't covered directly? Um, no, not really, because you said you just wanted to kind of let it emerge. I think it kind of has. Yeah. I think with um, I hope within within our the pursuit of the book, because I know I get very passionate when I'm talking about this because it is close to my heart. That I want to put across this whole idea of. The book isn't about how you can avoid failure, but how you can make it not part of the discussion of parenting, that there is no winning and losing. There's just winning and learning. And it really is fundamental that we just get into a grow mindset of what is it that I can do here today to have the optimal result, whatever that result might be. Yep. So it's not a set of set of rules. It's just a set of ideas to try on and see how they fit you. And and I have to say on a personal note, not only has it been very useful and a really good read, uh, 
from the perspective of someone who, ha who has a couple of kids. Um, I also think it would be well worth people reading, even if they don't have kids or they're not at that stage yet, because it, it shines yeah. so much light on the relationship that they've had with their own parents. And hey, you know, we've, we've all got parents and we all have a background. And it's, it's it was fascinating even through that filter, too. Thank you, because because it is that idea that what came to me was that if you in order to raise a child to have an internal locus control, you've got to have one yourself. So it's personal development for parents in both senses. It's personal development for parents, parenting children, for them to be able to grow. But it's also how you can grow through the action of being a parent. So taking the parenthood away, this is just a personal development book containing all the things that I've learned that I apply in my own life. So, yeah, I agree. The children are, I don't want to say the children are peripheral to it, but they're not, you don't have to have them to benefit, I would say. Yeah. Well, listen, I've really, really enjoyed having you back on today, Trevor. Yeah, me too. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so thank you so much for coming back. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed it uh, as much as I have. And as always, if you've got comments uh, about any of the stuff that Trevor's raised uh, underneath his episode, there is space to type in comments, thoughts, questions. Uh, and I'm sure I'll be able to persuade Trevor to come back if there are any good ones uh, to fill in some answers on the questions underneath his episode guide and partake there as well. Yeah, very happy to fantastic thank you so much i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to itunes to give us a glowing review you'll find more about what's coming up on our facebook page facebook.com forward slash rapid change works and of course you'll find all the links related to this episode plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.